You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. We are in full-on Disney princess mode in our house. Last night, my two daughters were watching uh, the Cinderella, the one with like Brandy and Whitney Houston from the 90s. Remember that one? And I literally look over in the living room, and my daughter is like dancing with a broom during the ball scene, like just full-on Disney princess mode. And if that's not bad enough, my wife is obsessed with princesses too. She is obsessed with the Netflix show The Crown. Anybody else? Season five? Season? I've never watched an episode. So season five. And uh, she'll walk through our house once in a while with a British accent, a cup of tea, and pinky up, saying, cheerio, right? What is with Americans' obsessions with princesses and royalty and all of the things? Like, like if you've been paying attention to what's happened in the world over the last couple months here, what was a massive kind of thing that happened over in the UK recently? The Queen passed away, Right? And uh, so you have all of these different discussions on the news and different outlets and things like that about like, okay, what is King Charles' reign going to look like and what happens when he steps onto the throne and all of these things. And I don't know about you, but I kept seeing these charts pop up in my social feeds about the entire line of succession for the kingdom, for the throne, right? And so like you have like all of the different scenarios of what could happen for taking over the throne. I mean, I saw literally, no joke, news outlets asking questions like, what would a King David II Earl of Snowden's reign look like? I'm like, dude, he is 27th in line for the throne. I'm more likely to become king of of the UK than he is. The, The point is, kingdoms have a hierarchy, don't they? They have a succession, a line of succession. They have an order. There is a greatest in a kingdom, and there is a least in a kingdom. Every single kingdom has a hierarchy, and Jesus' kingdom is no exception. There is in Jesus' kingdom a greatest, and there is in Jesus' kingdom a least. There is a highest place of honor and a lowest place of honor. And what I want to do is, as we dive into our text today is I want to just look at how Jesus' disciples approach what it means to be great in his kingdom and what Jesus does to actually flip greatness on its head. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, if you have your Bibles with you. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, this is what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? Now, even as you read that question, you have to imagine they have an idea in their head of what greatness looks like, don't they? They have an idea of what status in Jesus' kingdom actually looks like, don't they? And and what Jesus does is he kind of flips the question on its head and he does this, calling to him a little child. He put him in the midst of them. So he's got a little toddler right here in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is 
the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a pretty backwards answer that Jesus gives to his disciples' question in that moment. This is a pretty upside-down kind of kingdom, a pretty countercultural way to answer this question. He takes someone like a child and places that child in the middle of the whole group and uses this child as an object lesson. Now, we may not ask the same question, who is the greatest in the kingdom today, the same exact way. We battle all the time about greatness, don't we? Like, for example... When I observe just the different battles that exist between the generations, we're battling for hierarchy all the time, right? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's, you know, who's more moral? Who's more immoral? Those types of things. Like, like if you've ever seen the way generational conversations go, they often go a lot like this. So you have a boomer. Where are my boomers at in the room? (laughs) They're like sort of raising their hands. You have boomers who may make, like this is all stereotypical, okay, not you guys, of course, but this is stereotypical, who may make a statement like, this is the way we've always done it. Why you got to rock the boat? And then you have the stereotypical millennial or Gen Z, which is, which is me, okay? And uh, we'll make statements like, okay, boomer, <laughs> you're, you're just a has-been. Like, like, what do you know about anything. Again, stereotypical. This is not what I'm personally saying here. And then the boomer will respond, well, I've worked hard to get where I'm at, right? I've earned a place at the tables that I sit at. You are just an entitled, lazy millennial. No, I'm an expert. I listen to a podcast. Your generation just shut all the doors to success behind my generation. You could go buy a house for $5,000 and it was like 20 bucks to go to college for a semester. Right? Have we not heard this language? And then the, the older generation will be like, I walk to school uphill in the snow both ways. The only thing you know of snow is being a triggered little snowflake. Right? And this is the, this, I, you laugh because you know it's true. Right? This is the dynamic between the generations. Who is the greatest? We're still asking Jesus this same question today. And you know what Jesus says? You know what his response is? He says, my kingdom hierarchy is built on humility. Jesus' kingdom hierarchy is not built on who knows the most, who has the most experience, who's lived the most, who thinks they're smarter the most, Jesus' kingdom hierarchy is built on humility. See, a lot of the core problems that exist between the generations, not just in the church, not just outside the church, but in the church too, come down to what I believe are three statements we say about each other all the time. You don't respect me or my generation. You don't see me or my generation and we do not share the same values as each other. And by the way, these statements go both ways. It's not just one generation to another. It's all generations saying this to each other. You don't respect me. You don't see me. You don't share my values. And as a result, we don't end up talking to each other. We miss out on a huge part of what Jesus has for his church. Jesus' kingdom hierarchy is built on humility. I want to draw your attention back into the text here in verse 3. 
Jesus says something pretty interesting. He says this, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This language that Jesus is using here, he says the word turn and become like children, which implies that our natural inclination is to go this way, is to build greatness in a specific way, to build greatness based on merit or achievement or earnings or possessions. And Jesus is saying here, unless you what? Turn and become like a child. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's using repentance language here. The the calling of the generations to turn. You see, Jesus, he's doing something really cool here. He's casting vision for his kingdom community by speaking to the generations. And he says, if you want to understand my kingdom hierarchy, take a look at this little kid. You have to become childlike if you want to enter this kingdom. Now notice, notice he says childlike, not childish, right? There is a massive difference between childlike and childish. And all the parents in the room said, amen, right? On one hand, kids live with this childlike wonder and curiosity and to be honest, like humility and love and sacrifice and innocence and joy and creativity. But what Jesus is getting at here is not just that we become like more curious. What he's getting at here is we become more humble. You see, childlikeness in Jesus' world wasn't just about being curious, wasn't just about being inquisitive. It was actually more about the status that kids took in that world. See, kids in Jesus' world were the bottom of the bottom of the totem pole. They had no status in Jesus' world. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, unless you turn your life around, like if if your whole life is focused on success and achievement and reaching retirement by a certain age and comfort and all of these things, unless you turn your life around and reorient it for the sake of other people, miss out on a huge part of what my kingdom is all about. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, humble yourselves. Take a position that is lower than you think you ought to have in this kingdom, and you will be great. Now contrast that with childish, because on one hand, kids are inquisitive and joyful and creative, but on the other hand, they are a bunch of little narcissists sometimes. (laughs) Amen? Like violent little gremlins that will come at you right? I want it. It's mine. I was first. Tantrums. This is the point in the sermon where I have to really resist the urge to tell a story about my own kids. Just one? Okay, I'll tell one. (laughs) Baptism, you, you know we celebrated baptism just a few weeks back here, October 30. Beautiful celebration. But baptism is actually a really hard day for our family. And the reason it's a really hard day for our family is because We have a child who will remain nameless, her name rhymes with Schmoen, um, (laughs) who is obsessed with wanting to get baptized. Like, obsessed, which is beautiful, right? She's four years old, she, like, obsessed. Like, anytime she sees that tank up there, all she wants to do, all she'll, I mean, she probably asked us 400 times that morning if she could get baptized, right? And so, 
as parents, this is beautiful. It's childlike, right? Like we want to we wanna nurture this. We want to feed into it. And so we, we ask her, well, what, is, what does baptism mean to you, Rowan? And she goes, I don't know. You tell me. Like, cool, okay, well, that's a sign maybe you're not quite ready for it yet, but, but we'll continue these conversations, and we'll continue talking about it, and I'm not kidding. She, she gets the angriest look on her face right there here in church, and she goes, baptize me now, and she just, like, punches us. Childlike, childish, right? They're two very, very different things. It doesn't matter how old you are or how long you have been a Christian. Whether you possess a childlike or childish faith has everything to do with the posture that you take when it comes to Jesus. It has everything to do with the posture that you take in this family, in this church. Who is the greatest? That is a childish question. Right? That is a question that says, what can I get out of it? What's in it for me? But childlike faith says, how can I give my life away for the sake of others? How can I become less? How can I learn from others who are from a different generation? How can I get excited about what God is doing in the lives of others? And how can I participate in his redeeming work in other stories? That's childlike faith. And if there is a key to bridging the generational divides that exist in the church, I believe Jesus is on to something here. It's all about humility. It's all about humbling ourselves. Whether you are younger or older or somewhere in between, it is all about humbling ourselves because Jesus' kingdom hierarchy is not built on age or status. It is built on humility. See, I believe that if a lot of our core problems between generations come down to you don't respect me, you don't see me, you don't share my values, then the questions we need to be asking if we're going to take a childlike posture is why don't we see each other or tend to respect each other or share each other's values? Why do different generations value different things? So what I want to do here for the next few minutes is I want to just Take us on a walk down memory lane for the different generations that exist in our church. Can we do this? We're going to have some fun here for, for a minute. And here's the deal. When your generation comes on the screen, you got to like, you got to own it proudly, okay? I promise I'm not going to make fun of you. We got to like own this, okay? I'll own my generation too, as much as I want to pretend like I'm not part of them. But, um, okay, so here's the first one. Boomers. Now, every single generation is asking a front door spiritual question. What do I mean by this? Every single generation has, like, the top spiritual faith question that they are asking. Like, if, if the church or if the scriptures can't answer this top tier spiritual question, there's not a lot of, like, getting anywhere else with them, okay? And so, boomers, their top tier, where are my boomers at, first of all, in the room? You've got to own this, own this. Yes, boomers. I love you guys. Boomers, their top-tier spiritual question, and I got all this from a podcast, by the way. <laughs> yeah, typical millennial. Is, what is true? What is true? This is, this is the top-tier spiritual question for the boomer generation. And boomers are from 1947 to 1964, um, ish. So, why, why are boomers asking this question right here, what is true? Well, I want you to think about the world that boomers grew up in. 
Okay, this was a world, boomers in a lot of ways, of the last modern generation before postmodernism kind of came in. And postmodernism is this idea of like relative truth and, and things like that. And so the, the boomer generation is the last modern generation that is culturally built on this idea of objective, firm truth. And so faith is built around what is true, what is solid, what is secure. It's built around truth. In fact, there was a relative stability in institutions and things like that, that, that this is built around. And, and if you think about kind of even the cultural spotlight in the 60s and 70s, one of the things that came against Christianity during that time is, can Christianity stand up to scientific inquiry, right? Like, can, is it true enough? Is it stable enough to the point where even science can't refute it? There is a stability that, that whether the Bible could stand up to science, and there's some sense of stability here. But then Gen X comes on the scene, and Gen X's experience is a little bit different. See, when Gen X comes on the scene, there's a little bit of shakiness that comes with institutions. Right? Gen X grew up in a post-Watergate era. Gen X grew up witnessing the Challenger explosion in the 80s. Right? And you see these massive cultural shifts that Gen X is experiencing, skyrocketing divorce rates in their parents' generation, AIDS pandemic, economy not doing great. Even in the 80s and 90s, lots of tele-evangelists having moral failures and falling from grace. And so you have Gen X that sees, okay, the generation before them is asking what is true, and the Gen, Gen Xers are like, well, truth can be abused. Like, you can ask what is true, but... But if you really do some digging and you get under the surface, what is real? Like, what's below the facade? What's below the surface? Like, I want your story to be real and authentic and vulnerable and, like, grounded in reality. What is real? See, a lot of the institutions that boomers maybe took for granted as stable were kind of feeling fractured and fragile. Don't just tell me what is true, what is real. You have this broken world, and then the greatest generation of all shows up. Where are my millennials at? There's like five of us in the room, but we are a loud and proud group, okay? Millennials show up on the scene, and they are like, we see your broken world, Gen X. We can raise you a new one and fix it all, right? We, as millennials, we were growing up as one of the more coddled generations. We'll just say it like that. Parenting approaches were different for millennials. We were raised differently. We were raised with like team sports attitudes and we all win together and we all lose together and we all get participation trophies and all of that fun stuff we create together. And, and because of this, we became a very socially conscious generation. Anybody familiar with Tom's shoes at all? That's like a massive millennial thing where you buy a pair of shoes and then another pair is given to orphans in Africa, right? I mean, this is the world that millennials are in. And, and millennials are asking the question, what is good? Like, how is Jesus good news right now? In fact, if you go to any kind of like pastor seminar about how you preach to millennials, how you preach to millennials isn't just about preaching that Jesus is good news for the afterlife, that he's just fire insurance from hell, but millennials have this deep longing and hunger to see how Jesus is good news for the world right now in all of its brokenness. 
in all of its fractures. So millennials, millennials need to understand that Jesus is not just good news for the future. He's actually good news for the world right now. And so we are asking the question, what is good? And then the last generation, Gen Z. Where's Gen Z at here in the room? Yeah, we love some Gen Z. I lo- By the way, I love Gen Z. I love this generation. This is the generation born roughly from 1998-ish to 2016. And there's all kinds of debate on when these actual years fall, but this is kind of generally speaking. The question that Gen Z seems to be asking is, what is worthy? What is worthy of my time? What is worthy of my efforts? What is worthy of my affection? What is worthy of my worship? You see, Gen Z are the expert generation. They are technological experts, artistic experts. If millennials were doers, Gen Z are improvers. They can create studio-quality movies on their iPhone, masterful music on their laptops. Actually, I'll just, I got to give a shout out here. Andrew Warren, who's back in the tech booth, raise your hand. Everybody say hi, Andrew. So Andrew is our Gen Z tech intern, and that podcast we're starting, My New Life Story, completely his idea. He says, I can, yeah, we, I mean, like, he's like, I know how to produce podcasts. I would love to be able to do a testimony story podcast for the church. See, Gen Z, they're experts. They just find out what they need to find out on YouTube if they don't know how to do something. And their perspective is if you're not improving, you're not really trying, they seek the ideal life. They want to give their time to things that matter. Right? They want to give their time to things that are beautiful, that are worthy, that are worth giving their lives to. And as I think about all four of these questions that every different generation is asking, I just want to ask you, which of these questions are needed in the church? All of them. For different reasons and different ways. See, if all I'm asking is what is true, but I'm not asking what is real underneath the surface, well, well, truth can be easily abused. If I'm just asking what is good, but I'm not asking what is true, then I end up defining my own good, my own truth, right? And if I'm asking what is real, but I'm not asking what is worthy, well, then the church can just end up spending a lot of our time on things that really are not worthy of our efforts and our time and our affection. The reality is a childlike faith says we need all of these questions in the church. We need what your generation uniquely has to offer. Same gospel, different cultural lenses that we see it through. Church, we need each other. We need each other's stories. We need each other's perspectives. We need each other's experiences. We need each other's wisdom. We need each other's humility. I came across this quote yesterday. I shared it on social media, but I just love it. It says this, when you're willing to wash someone's feet, humble yourself to serve them, you find out why they walk the way they do. You're willing to wash someone's feet, you find out why they walk the way they do. Jesus' kingdom hierarchy is built on humility. And so I want to go back to Matthew 18. I want to go back to the text here because what Jesus does 
is I believe that he gives a word of invitation and a word of warning to every single generation. And he begins with those who are in the older generation. And this is what he says in verse 5 of chapter 18. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he's speaking to those in spiritual authority. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Well, that took a dark turn. Here's the thing. The word receive, when Jesus uses this word, he's using the word for hospitality. He's using the word for opening up our lives to each other, to receive each other, to humble ourselves enough to intermix in each other's stories, in each other's perspectives, in each other's experiences. I think of the words of Philippians 2 where Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Don't just look to your own interests, but look at the interests of those around you. Jesus' command here is to receive those who are younger. But then he issues a pretty stark warning. He says, to those of you who are in spiritual authority over others, to those of you who are in generations that have come before, if you do something to betray the trust of those who have put their trust in Jesus and that causes them to sin or fall away or stumble from God, it will be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's, he's using big language to get a big reaction, but he's really serious about this stuff. Right? I don't know if you know or have a picture of what a millstone would be, but it's like this massive round stone designed for crushing grain in the world that Jesus lived in. And what he's literally painting a picture of is this massive round stone, you being boated out, which I don't know how a boat would float with that thing on it, but you being boated out into the middle of the sea and drowned. That'd be a pretty miserable way to go. He takes this very, very seriously. He takes humility in his kingdom very seriously. And there's so many generational implications to what Jesus is saying here. I want to speak to the older generation for just a moment here. Younger generations have seen a lot of scandals in the church over the decades, over the generations, over the years. We need to actually acknowledge those things. And say that those actually do impact the way we experience Jesus, the way we experience faith. Those scandals have caused a lot of young people to walk away. Repentance is needed in those areas. Here's another one. When our entire life is built around building our own castle, hoarding, getting to a place where we can be comfortable in life and just seclude, we've missed the boat on what Jesus wants. Here's another one. What happens when we center on the wrong things? When we resist change as if it's, we're changing the gospel, but we're really just trying to change methods. I just want to say this. I understand that change in the church is really hard sometimes. Believe me, I, I, I'm the type of personality that resists change pretty naturally. We've seen a lot of change in the church over the last few years. Don't think that that doesn't impact me too. Don't think that there's not things that I'm grieving that have been lost as well. But what happens 
when we have such a laser focus on what our mission is, that we'll do whatever it takes to reach younger generations, that we will not forsake the words of the scriptures, the truth of this book, the, the what is true. We will not forsake that. We won't. But our methods and the way we go about doing things has to change. You even see that changing in the New Testament. Like the methods in some communities were different than the methods in other communities. And if you study the 2,000-year history of the church, there are different methods used for different generations. This isn't a new thing. But here's what I want you to hear more than anything else if you are from an older generation. Like retired people, hear me loud and clear. Turn up your hearing aids if you have to hear this, okay? <laughs> that was a joke. I'm just kidding. Ouch. You are one of the greatest gifts that this church has. I say that with all sincerity. You are one of the greatest gifts that this church has. I think even as I just look around this room and see the stories of different retired people, God has used you powerfully in this community, and he's not done with you. He's not. He's used so many of you in, in my life in the lives of people around you. Like, like if you're sitting at home and you're wondering to yourself, well, what can I be doing? What can I pour my life into in this next season? We have areas that you can pour your life into. We have an essential store that's open every single Tuesday for two hours. What would it look like for you to come and just give some time to that during the week? Like there are opportunities for you not to waste these years, but to actually pour them into the lives of others and invest them. I look back and I see someone like Lori Barr sitting in the back there. Lori Barr is self-described as 90 mile per hour Lori. Okay, that's like her name for herself. And Lori is one who I just think of who is not wasting the years of retirement that God has given her. She is squeezing every single ounce of purpose out of them. And God is using her in this community as a result. And so here's, yeah, we can clap for, for Lori. Here's what I want you to hear. What is your spiritual legacy? What's the spiritual legacy that you are leaving behind? Because Jesus' kingdom hierarchy, it's built on humility. It's built on our willingness and our ability to serve others and give our lives away for the sake of others. Here's the thing, though. Jesus does not let younger people off the hook either, okay? So there is a word for the younger generations here, and I want you to, to take a look with me. His warning in verses 6 and 7 is a clear warning to those in spiritual authority not to let sin infect those entrusted to our care, but his warning in verses 8 and 9 is very, very different. So younger people, I want you to pay attention here. Verse 8 says this, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Again, hyperbole, okay? It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. His warning in verses 8 and 9 is a warning against letting sin infect us personally. Right? His warning here is that a lot of young people, and I'll say this, a lot of young people are quick to point out the spiritual sins and the shortcomings 
of other generations, of people who have gone before. Jesus addresses that in verses 5 through 7. He says, beware to those of you who have gone before. Beware to those of you who are in spiritual authority, not to let those behind you trip. But then he ultimately puts the responsibility in our hands for our spiritual walk. Right? It's easy to critique a different generation. It's easy to critique what's out there. But Jesus doesn't allow us that luxury without first examining what's in here. If your life is causing you to sin, young people, you need to examine that. It's easy to just toss all of the blame to generations who have gone before you for the failures in the church or the broken state of the church, but Jesus doesn't let us just critique externally without first examining internally. And so for for those of us who might be younger, the very first place that you look is inside. That's what humility looks like. Saying it's easy, and Jesus has a warning for those who come before, but, but I want to ask you young people, where have you blamed other people for the state of your own faith? You spend too much time focused on the failures of the church than on your own pursuit of Jesus. He is calling you to humble yourself. You're quick to call out the sin of others without examining and repenting of the sin in your own heart. Jesus is calling you out to humble yourself. Because his kingdom hierarchy is built on humility. So why does Jesus want us to understand this so badly? Why does Jesus want us to understand this dynamic of humility so badly? I want to invite the band back up. Whoops, sorry. The band back up as as we begin to close here. But I think the reason why Jesus wants us to understand why humility matters so much is because this is the only posture in which we can actually receive salvation. Humility is the only posture in which we can receive salvation. See, there's there's two different ways to come to Jesus, or that we think we can come to Jesus. On one hand, some of us approach Jesus and we think to ourselves, like, I got most of my life together. I've made some mistakes. I'm not perfect. I don't pretend to be. Jesus here... I've got most of this put together, but will you help me kind of clean up the areas that I need some help with? And so Jesus is just kind of like an add-on to our lives. That's not childlike faith. That's saying, Jesus, I got most of it figured out. I just need you to be kind of the whipped cream on top, right? Just kind of fix what's, what's broken. That's not childlike faith. The type of faith that Jesus is after is a poverty of spirit kind of faith. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is childlike faith, a type of faith that says this, Lord, I need to be saved by sheer grace and grace alone. Completely free salvation. If you gave me what I deserved, I would be lost. Completely, utterly, holy. Save me by grace You know, it's interesting, right after this passage, like the very next verses, Jesus shares the story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and goes in search of the one. He really, really takes this stuff seriously. We would be the type of people who enter this kingdom with humility, who walk in this kingdom with humility, and who lead others in this kingdom with humility. 
Jesus' kingdom hierarchy is built on humility. And what he's saying is you'll never truly love the little ones of this world. You'll never develop true greatness until, first of all, you become as a little child spiritually. Childlike, not childish. Humble, curious, willing to learn. And here's what's so cool about Jesus is he actually is the model for how to do this. He who was the highest took the position of the lowest for our sake to demonstrate what this actually looks like, to demonstrate how the world is changed through humility. So when you see him doing that for you, our natural inclination is to want to start doing that for others. And and church, I just want to offer you an encouraging word as we close today. I see this happening already in our church in such cool ways. Like one of my favorite parts about baptism just a couple weeks ago was Alyssa's baptism. And Alyssa was someone who shared her story with us. And she was really nervous to share her story. She said that on stage. And, And we had met the Thursday before and One of the things that she had said is she said, I'm really nervous, but it's going to be okay because my mentor is going to be sitting right in the front row cheering me on. That is a woman named Jane in our church who comes from a different generation than Alyssa who has walked with her this past year and loved her and championed her. That's what childlike faith in the church looks like. It looks like another one of our students who is going to Guatemala in January with an adult and, and the entire purpose of that dynamic is intergenerational mentoring, walking together, showing each other Jesus in humility. I think of other people in our church, couples who have gotten married, Gen Z couples who have actively sought out, come to me and said, hey, we want other couples in the church to mentor us and walk with us. And so I think of like couples that have been mentoring each other over this last season in our church, intergenerational relationships happening Guys, when this happens, it's a beautiful thing. I think of, like, I can think of five different women in our church over the last year who have come to me and said, I am passionate about walking with other women. Will you help me get connected with some of them? This is already happening in our church. So here's the invitation for today. If you're not involved in any kind of intergenerational ness or intergenerational stuff in our church, my challenge for you is to get involved in some capacity. That's going to look different for all of us. Some of us, it's serving in student ministry or kids' ministry. Others of us, it's mentoring. It's walking with people. For others of us, it's serving young families through the essential store in our church. There's so many different ways. And if you're here and you want to get involved in some way, maybe you want somebody to mentor you. I want to just put this information on the screen as we close. You can email connect at newlifewayland.org. If you're a boomer or if you're Gen Z, you can just text that number below, but I I just want to encourage you, if if you're not involved in some kind of intergenerational relationships here in the church, you're really missing out on everything God has for you. His kingdom comes alive when we humble ourselves for this cause. So let me offer us a word of prayer, and then we're going to respond in worship together. Father, I thank you for who you are, for what you're doing in this community, in this church, Lord. I thank you for the ways that you have moved, for the ways that you're already moving, God. Father, I pray for people of every generation, generations who maybe feel counted out or like your best work with them is over or behind them. God, I pray 
that they see and understand that in Christ, our best days are always ahead of us. You're just getting started with using them. Father, I pray for people in younger generations who have just kind of seen this whole church thing be abused for a lot of their lives. Father, we repent of that. We repent as a church of the ways that we've lost the plot. And we recenter our lives and our hearts on you. You are the source of absolute truth. You are real and worthy of us building our lives on. That you are good news for the world right now. Father, may you through your Holy Spirit, bring generations together in this community, in this church, so that our town and our community and our world can see that you really are good news. Father, we pray all of this in the holy name of Jesus. Everybody said.